Well, if you need a Bible this morning, just slide your hand up. Our ushers would love to bring you one. We have plenty of Bibles here. They'll bring you one this morning. Uh, Maybe you've got a digital Bible, and and that's great. And hopefully you've got uh, your paper Bible as well with you. And uh, opening it up to Mark chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 53 uh, to 65 here this morning. And as we uh, open up God's Word, I want to ask you, as you're preparing this morning to hear from Him... Uh, I want you to ask yourself a question. Um, ask yourself the question of, of uh, do you love a good story focused on law? Do you love a good story that might be focused on, say, a court case? Uh, maybe it's a book, maybe it's a movie, maybe it's a television series. Uh, there's a lot of those that focus on court cases and trials. They involve judges and juries. And lawyers. Anybody out there enjoy those kinds of stories? Yeah, actually quite a few of us. It's awesome. Um, maybe like me, you enjoy a good John Grisham novel, or, or uh, maybe you listen to a podcast, you know, tracing out some serious crime or injustice, and it gets thoroughly investigated, and then uh, finally it's brought to justice uh, in the end. I remember my brother uh, suggesting a podcast to me. It was, it was about a true crime story. Uh, it was a court case in the end, and I started listening to it as I drove back from Fort St. John, my, my hometown, uh, to come here. It's about a 10-hour drive, and I, I pressed play on the first podcast, and I could not stop listening until I got to Calgary. It was a straight, I don't know, nine hours of this whole investigative story that ended in a trial. I was fascinated by it. I, w- I was glued to it. I wanted to see justice prevail in the end. You know, we, we love court cases. We love these, these even in the movies, uh, TV series, documentaries about lawyers and court cases. Um, we have so many famous movies over the year, blockbuster movies, To Kill a Mockingbird in the 60s, Kramer vs. Kramer in the 70s, A Few Good Men in the 90s, and then we have daytime TV over the years, all about courts and judges, the People's Court, Judge Judy. We stream all kinds of investigative crime and legal series As a culture, we love this stuff. We eat it up. We examine the evidence for ourselves. We hear the testimony. We weigh the arguments. And we wait with suspense for the verdict and for the sentencing. We want the innocent to be protected. We want the guilty to be punished. We want justice for crime. We love justice. Well, as we turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 53 to 65... Our Lord and Savior, Jesus, in the final hours of his life, is facing justice himself. As he was just betrayed in the garden with a kiss, as his disciples fled in fear, and as he was willingly arrested by the mob, today we're going to see him stand before a court where he is going to be unlawfully indicted, unlawfully detained, falsely heard, unjustly tried, and then tragically sentenced. So the title of my sermon this morning is The Trial, A Necessary Injustice. Let's let's pray, and then we're going to go to the Word together. Lord, we we do stand before your Word open before us. We have uh, the Bible app open before us. Uh, Your Word, your true, sufficient, and errant Word. And we ask, Lord, that as we look at this section of Mark, that you by your Spirit would speak to us through your Word. 
We trust that you would do that, that you would clear it for us, clarify it for us, impress it upon our hearts so that we can come to know you, so that you can renew our minds, renew our thinking, and you can change our desires and our affections would be set no longer on ourselves, but upon your son. We pray that you would do that in our hearts this morning. Move me aside. May your word go forth in power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So when we think about these legal proceedings in courts and juries and judges, let's look at Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So as we turn to this court scene. We remember legal proceedings in courts here, juries here, judges here, and justice. We often think that these are modern concepts, right? Modern concepts and practices, but as you study uh, the history of civilization and society, law and justice is an ancient concept. It goes all the way back, uh, back to the Egyptians, back to the Babylonians, and Jews, and Greeks, And although it has evolved to what it is today, it still shares basic practices and common concepts passed on down through the centuries. So as we see Jesus here being brought before the court of this high priest, in our text we need to remember that the Jews have been practicing law since the earliest days. When Moses was leading Israel in the desert, Remember that he received the written law from the Lord and the Jews were to follow the law if they were to receive blessing, right? They were to follow the law as they were to go into the promised land if they were to receive blessing and they were to practice it. We see in Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 20, Moses writes, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. 
You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So we see from the earliest days, the Jews were given a just and a fair system to follow as they went into the land, as they established their civilization, civilization. And they did that. They, they established their cities and their towns. And with that, they established the, the law and judges and officers of courts. And they practiced it. They practiced this legal system right up to this day that we see here where Jesus is being arrested. Of course, it's changed quite a bit since the beginning. But law is being practiced. And now we see Jesus standing in the courtyard of the high priest. But as we're going to see, the justice that they're about to dole out is out of order. It's not just. It's unlawful. And it's wrong. Which leads us to our first observation here this morning. Our Savior was unlawfully detained. We're looking at verses 53 to 54. Our Savior was unlawfully detained. Verse 53, and they. Well, well, who are they? Well, it's the mob from the garden, right? Back in verse 43, right? They came in with swords and clubs uh, sent by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And then Jesus went willingly with them, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the scribes came together. Now, this high priest being mentioned here uh, is a guy by the name of Caiaphas. He was the high priest of the temple. He was the big cheese. He was the guy. He was the guy that was in charge. But in many ways, he was just the high priest on paper. We have to understand this. In John's gospel, we actually learn that before Jesus was taken to Caiaphas, he was actually brought to Annas. So John chapter 18, verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So this Annas fella, he was the former high priest between A.D. 6 and A.D. 15. He was a corrupt priest, and he controlled all of the money that would flow in and out of the temple, and he was greedy for gain. Uh, in AD 15, the Roman Empire ousted him as priest. We don't know exactly why, um, but this didn't stop his control. In fact, as the years went on, five of his own sons would become priest, high priest. And then we see here as well that his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the high priest. In many ways, it was a family business. When you think about this, think about the mob. It was a family business. They controlled the money in the temple. And through Caiaphas, his son-in-law, he is controlling the money coming in and out of, of the temple. Just remember, remember the money changers. People would come and bring their money to buy a sacrifice or they would exchange their Roman money for um, Jewish money. And so all of this had a tax. All of this was being skimmed off the top. It was a lucrative system. And so in John 18, we do see here that uh, Jesus is brought first to Annas. And then this Annas actually questions Jesus illegally because he's not officially the high priest anymore. But then we see Jesus, knowing the law, 
knowing that Annas legally needed evidence of two or three witnesses, in John 18, verse 21 to 24, I've got it behind me here. He says, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas can't make an answer for that. And so Annas sends him bound to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the high priest, which brings us back to our text here today. Verse 54. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So although we know that uh, all of the disciples fled when Jesus was arrested, we see here secretly that, that Peter didn't go too far. Peter returns to the scene. He wants to see what's happening with his Savior. And he sees that Jesus was unlawfully detained in the high priest's courtyard. He's unlawfully being held for trial. And so what, what do I mean by unlawfully? Well, according to uh, the Jewish writings, according to the Jewish uh, laws that were written in the in intertestamental period, uh, they had the Mishnah, which was uh, the ruling book of law at that time. Um, it was where you would find the directions for the Sanhedrin and capital court cases, like the one that Jesus is about to face. And in that book, it gives a lot of regulations for how the Sanhedrin are to try people in criminal cases. And what we see here is that it has a lot to say of how the court case with Christ was actually illegal. Court cases like what Jesus was facing here were only supposed to take place during the daytime. It was strictly forbidden to the day. And they were supposed to be taking place in the hall of hewn stone. I've got a picture of that also behind me. Uh, if you look down in the corner there, you see the uh, top view of the, the temple. In that little corner there uh, is where the Sanhedrin is supposed to meet and try people on their criminal cases and other cases as well. But this is not where this is taking place. This is going on in a courtyard of the high priest, so that's illegal. And it was definitely not to be taking place on a Sabbath or on a festival. So immediately we see right off the bat here three major illegal violations when it comes to Jesus' detainment. So let me, let me ask you, what time of day was this taking place? You guys remember? Yeah, sometime between 1 and 3 uh, in the morning, right? It was, it was after the Passover meal, but before the rooster crows. So 1 and 3 in the morning. Uh, what festival was taking place? Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so we've got festivals taking place. And then again, they're not at this official courthouse. They're not there. They're actually in the courtyard of the priest at his home. And so we see three major illegal violations right off the bat. Friends, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders want Jesus killed so bad that they were willing to break their own laws, willing to break the system they were to be following just so they could shut him up. One commentator remarks, nearly every detail of Jesus' trial 
violates the rules for capital cases according to the Mishnah. They hated him. They wanted him silenced. They were willing to break every law in the books in order to get that done. Our Savior was unlawfully detained because they hated him. As much as the world hated Jesus, how much does the world hate Jesus today? How much is the world trying to silence Jesus today? It seems like wherever and whenever you turn today, biblical truth is being rejected. Biblical values are being thrown out. Any mention of Jesus in the culture is being scrubbed. They don't want it. Just like the Sanhedrin. The world wants Christ silenced. Today there's a new phenomenon called the new atheism. You know, in the past we had atheists who denied the existence of God, naturalists. But for the most part, they might write some books, but they kept to themselves. But that's changed. Today we have the new atheism. People who proactively and militantly protest against Christianity and religion. You ever heard of the name Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett? or Christopher Hitchens, who has since died, these guys would consider themselves to be evangelists of atheism. They make it their life goal to disrupt and to tear down biblical teaching and religion altogether. And they especially want any news about Jesus being a savior silenced. So when we think about these chief priests and these scribes, and we think about these elders... We need to remember that they hated him. And it wasn't even so much about what he was teaching, but what he was threatening. Just think of Annas and Caiaphas and the control that they had on the temple and the money. They actually really didn't care what Jesus proclaimed. They were concerned that their scam was going to be up, that it was going to come to an end. That if people believed in this Jesus, this whole temple system that they had would be over. And so this this detainment and trial of Christ was one big sham. The chief priests and scribes and elders were digging and digging. And we've already witnessed this a lot already in the questioning of the temple. Trying to trip Jesus up trying to get him to say something illegal. They kept digging and digging and digging, bringing false charges against Christ, but they couldn't find it. And nothing about this court case that Jesus is facing is just. First, we see he was unlawfully detained. Next, we're going to see also that our Savior was unjustly tried. Our Savior was unjustly tried. Verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another. Not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Friends, our Lord was unjustly tried. They were seeking testimony and they found none, it says. 
So we see they found no good testimony, and many bore false witness, and their testimony did not agree. Over and over again, we're seeing this. And so as we see this illegal hearing taking place, we see that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony. Now remember, this is all taking place in the middle of the night, and it says here that the whole council was there. All 70 members of the Sanhedrin, or maybe just all the, all the ones who would agree to what was happening here. It's being taken place in secret. So what we see is that this whole council was notified of these proceedings in the middle of the night, and they arrive between 1 and 3 in the morning. They come out to this court, this courtyard. This is no small thing. And the text says they begin seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now in Jewish law at that time, when the Sanhedrin would meet to judge cases of law, they were supposed to behave more like jurors and judges rather than prosecutors. They, they were able to investigate. They were able to ask questions of examination, but they weren't allowed to bring charges upon somebody. They were supposed to be searching for the truth. They were supposed to be nonpartisan. They were supposed to hear both sides. But in this case, quickly we see their motive. We see the motive that got them out of bed in the middle of the night. It says they were seeking testimony, verbal evidence against Jesus. Why? In order to put him to death. They weren't interested in the truth. They weren't interested in being fair. They could have been thinking to themselves, this Jesus has caused enough disturbance in this city. Somebody, give us something that we can work with. But they couldn't find any. It says they found none. All they could find was false testimonies, testimonies that contradicted each other. Verse 56 says, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. So false witnessing and their witnessing didn't even agree. You know, in, in, in good court cases, you want corroborating evidence. You want corroborating testimonies. That means that you want evidence that confirms evidence. Testimony from one person that backs up the testimony of somebody else. But what we see here is an absolute joke. Nothing is lining up. One guy says one thing, another says something totally different. And then we get an example of that here. Some claim to have heard Jesus saying that he's going to destroy the temple. I mean, this goes all the way back to him cleansing the temple. John 2.19 gives us some insight here of what Jesus actually said. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Right? This was confusing for those who didn't have ears. But for those who had eyes and ears, uh, they could understand this. But the understanding of this was that Jesus was speaking not about a temple built with hands. He was speaking about his body. He was speaking about his bodily resurrection. Three days, he's going to raise it up. John 2.21 tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. But some of the Jews who were hearing this, we're thinking that he's actually planning on tearing down the temple, leading an insurrection and tearing it down. 
Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Again, what we're seeing here is these false testifiers, they couldn't keep their stories straight. Their testimony was contradicting one another. And so the court couldn't bring formal charges yet. As I've watched documentaries and listened to podcasts about investigative crimes and in criminal cases, the one thing that you notice with false testimonies is that the story often changes. Especially when uh, you're talking about from one person to another person. You know, they, they may agree what the story is going to be, but when it comes to testifying, the details often conflict one another. We even see that with one person who, who falsely testifies in a court case. You ask them one day what the story is, another two weeks later, the story could be different. It was conflicting. And so what I think we're seeing here is that the council had already decided Jesus' guilt. They want him dead. And all they needed was a few bad men to remember a contrived story. And all they needed was a consistent fake testimony. All they needed was a consistent face, fake testimony. But in the end, these flunkies couldn't keep their story straight. Our Savior was unjustly tried. We're not promised an easy life. We're not promised a safe journey as Christians. We're not promised to be loved by all. In fact, what we're promised is to experience persecution and injustice, like what Jesus is going through. As the world hated Christ, the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And he learned this throughout his own persecuted life. He learned that by watching his Savior. He learned that by what Jesus taught him. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. As the world still hates Jesus to this day, when you and I stand for Christ, when we live boldly for him in all that we do, when we testify to the truth, people are going to say things about us. They're going to mock us. They're going to lie about us. As Jesus was hated, the world is also going to hate us. We see him standing trial because of hate. Early in, in our ministry, uh, Kim and I experienced firsthand when somebody is falsely accusing you of something. Someone was lying about us. And it was really hard to take. It really hurt. Because it was so false. It was so fabricated. It was so sinful. And so as I studied this this week about Jesus being lied about here, these false testimonies, it just brings back some of those memories. It brings back the hurt that my wife and I walked through and experienced. But what we learned in all of that and what we're seeing here as well is the closer that you are to Jesus, the more the world is going to hate you. The bolder that you stand for him, the more the world is going to ridicule you. As you testify to the truth, the world will testify falsely about you. 
It goes with the territory. Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. As you and I are going to be persecuted, we're also going to be lied about. We need to take comfort knowing that Jesus was there first. Jesus was being persecuted. Jesus was being lied about. We need to take comfort knowing that, that in his persecution and in those lying, those lies, Jesus stands firm. And that in him we can stand firm as well, testifying to the truth. The closer you are to Jesus, the more the world is going to hate you. Jesus is being so hated in this moment, they're willing to break any law in order to get to him. So back to these witnesses. They can't get their stories straight. They can't get a firm indictment against Christ. And so we see the high priest, Caiaphas, He takes things into his own hands, and he questions Jesus directly. Our Savior was falsely heard. Verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Jesus knew that this court was a mockery. He knew they were only there to trap him. So in his silence, he didn't give them anything to work with at this moment. And this is consistent with the prophecy about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is this prophesied suffering servant, prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years before, and he remains silent. He is the suffering servant. But again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of of the blessed. Now, this is the first legitimate question asked to Jesus. This is the first legitimate question he has received all night, and so it's the first one that he answers directly. As Jesus had been testifying throughout all of the Gospel of Mark, testifying to, this, to him being the Son of God through his life and through his ministry, in this moment being asked directly, Jesus cannot deny who he is. And so he replies, knowing that it will be used against him. Verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We see Jesus here boldly replying, I am. This court would instantly recognize that he's identifying with the great I am of scriptures, of the scripture. As he says, I am, he is answering their question directly that he is the son of the blessed. He is God himself. 
And so he testifies to the truth of his divine sonship. And then he goes on to say, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He's saying, I am going to be seated at the right hand of power, the right hand of the Father, and then I'm going to be returning. Seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What we see here, Jesus is testifying to being the Son to then going to be going to the Father, seated at the right hand of power, and then returning. The whole future plan all summed up in one sentence. And in his return, in his coming with the clouds of heaven, we know that he's going to be judging the living and the dead. So there's a lot wrapped up in there. We're going to come back to this here in a little bit. But let's look at his testimony. It could have been taken two ways. The right way to, to hear this testimony and to receive this testimony is to see Jesus Christ as the I am, as the Son of the blessed. To see him as the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies that Jesus is, yes, the Son of God, but he's also the Son of man, right? Jesus there is, is identifying with the prophecies of Daniel. Jesus is the long-awaited, prophesied, promised Savior of the world. He is God. And that he's also going to return to save the living and judge the dead. So the right response in hearing that would be to hear him for who he is. In that moment, hearing him for who he is, and then responding by turning away from your wicked ways and repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. That would be the right way to respond. Especially this, this group of, of 70 well-educated Jewish historians, lawyers, priests, elders, scribes. They're the ones who knew this book. They knew all the Old Testament scriptures. They would know how Jesus is the fulfillment if they would only open their eyes. But then there's the wrong way to hear his words. The wrong way is to continue hardening your heart. To reject his claims, to close your eyes to the truth, and to reject him even further. And that's exactly what the high priest does. There's too much at stake they're going to lose too much. Their system's going to be destroyed. Verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments. This was a sign, and you've seen this in Old Testament scripture, a sign of great distress showing, it's more for show than anything here, showing those around him that he believes that this Jesus is blaspheming God. So he tears his, his inner tunic in order to show this as an outward expression. And then he says, what further witnesses do we need? Right? Jesus has said it all. He's given us all the ammo that we need. Verse 64. You have heard his blasphemy. To claim to be equal to God was considered blasphemy. But the truth of the matter is, is Jesus is God. Their charges were false. 
And they were the ones who were blaspheming. Our Savior was falsely heard. They responded in rejection rather than repentance, and they labeled him as a blasphemer because he testified to being the Son of the Most Blessed, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Well, as I've been walking, or as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark over the past two years, we need to ask ourselves, how do we judge Jesus in our heart? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Savior? Is he your Lord? Or is he a blasphemer? Is he just a good man? Is he just a good teacher? Is he just an interesting story? Or is he your God? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Ask yourself, have I heard Jesus for who he testified himself to be? And do I believe it? Or do I reject him? Now we may profess to know Christ, but our lives and the evidence of our lives may betray us. You've got to ask yourself as well, does my life match up with my profession? Have I judged Jesus as my God, but yet my life is proclaiming something else? You may say that you believe in him, but by your actions, by your behavior, by your heart, maybe you're not quite there. Another good question to ask, and this comes from R.C. Sproul. Love R.C. Sproul. It says you need to ask yourself if you're a practical atheist. R.C. Sproul once said, What is deadly to the church is when the external forms of religion are maintained while their substance is discarded. This we call practical atheism. Practical atheism appears when we live as if there were no God, we may profess one thing, but live something else, right? We may come to church, we may put on a smile, we may sing the songs, we may even take the Lord's Supper, but when we go out the door and we live the other six days of our lives, we live as if there is no God. We don't run to his word, we don't seek his face in prayer, we don't live according to his wisdom, we don't worship him from our hearts. We may say that we believe but our inner and outer life just doesn't seem to match up. Ask yourself, is Jesus your Lord or is he a blasphemer? So we see the high priest here rejecting him, charging him with blasphemy. And then he turns to the rest of the court, asking them, what is your decision, right? You have already heard that that. I'm saying he's blasphemed. What is your decision? And what happens? They all condemn him as deserving death. Brothers and sisters, our Savior was tragically sentenced. Tragically sentenced. The Old Testament repercussions for blasphemy was to be stoned to death. To be stoned to death by the congregation of the people. Leviticus 24.16 Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. So we see Jesus here being accused of this, being charged 
with this, and his sentence is now capital punishment. They finally have Jesus exactly where they want him. They're saying that he's guilty, and they falsely charge him, and according to their law, they could kill him. But they had a big problem. The next hurdle that they face is that while under Roman occupation, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, they didn't have the authority to execute capital punishment. That was taken away from them by the Roman Empire. While Rome was in in overseeing Jerusalem, they fall under their jurisdiction, and it's only the Roman jurisdiction who could dole out capital punishment. And so, as we'll be studying, he's going, Jesus is going to be sent off to Pilate next. But before he was sent off, verse 65, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him. Their inner hatred turned physical. They couldn't hold back any longer. They couldn't contain that hate and that anger towards our Savior They spit in his face. They spit on him in disgust. And even though they couldn't legally stone him to death and kill him, they began to beat him, slap him, saying to him, mocking him, prophesy. Right? Mocking his claim to be the Son of God, mocking his divine sonship. And the guards received him with blows. This was a furious mob of hatred against Jesus. Which lines up with the suffering servant. Back to Isaiah 53, 3-4. He was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Annas and Caiaphas, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, this unjust court of hating men will one day answer for how they responded to Jesus. Jesus testifies that he is the son of God. But notice as well, that he said he is sitting at the right hand of power. He will be sitting at the right hand of power. Today, he is sitting at the right hand of power, right? The right hand of power, meaning pure, holy, powerful presence of the Father. Think of God as this eternal judge. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be sitting with him in all power. And then he's, he's warning them about his authority and that he is coming back. Brothers and sisters, when we look at the future, when we look at Revelation, we know Jesus is going to be returning with eyes of fire. Holy fury to inflict eternal justice on all of those who reject him. All of those who judge him as a blasphemer. Blasphemer. He will repay, remember? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. 
and it's not going to be pretty. He will repay evil. One interesting fact is that also inside of that is grace and mercy as well. If you know Joseph of Arimathea, we're going to be looking at him in the days to come. He was known to be one of those on the council. And he was in disagreement with Christ's um, trial. Obviously, I don't think he was there that evening. But we also see that in his justice, he also has mercy. So as much as we examine this story and we ponder this injustice and we, and we inside can rail against this cruelty and the lies and the hatred towards our Savior, we also need to remember that it was all necessary. It was a necessary injustice. Right, as Jesus just suffered and prayed in the garden an hour or two earlier, remember his anguishing cries to his Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. As Jesus prophetically revealed three times in Mark that he's going to be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and he's going to be condemned to death, this is exactly how it is going to take place. And then as Judas betrays Jesus for 40 pieces of silver, Mark 14, 21, Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You, just, you see the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility, this mysterious marriage Jesus even said about Judas, it would be better if he wasn't born. But yet it was the will of God that he lived and betrayed Jesus. You feel that tension. It's where man's responsibility and God's sovereignty intersect. It was a necessary injustice. As all of those who were involved in this court, this unjust court, were responsible for their sin. They were responsible for their part. 100% responsible. God was still sovereign over it all. It was a necessary injustice. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. He is divinely sovereign over it all. And so in that, we need to marvel at his sovereignty over all of this. We need to wonder at his plan in this book from beginning to end. How he promised to send someone who is going to come and crush Satan's head, promised from the very beginning, and how it fully is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. We need to wonder at his plan. Wonder at God's plan to love you, to save you, to forgive you forever through his only son. This was the plan. As the old hymn goes, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. When you guys look at that book in your hands, it's not just a collection of random stories. 
This is all the plan of salvation through Jesus Christ for God's glory alone. And we see his sovereignty and man's responsibility in this court. It was a necessary injustice for perfect justice. I want you to read this aloud with me, 2 Corinthians 5.21. I don't know if I have it up there or not. Yes, I do. Read this aloud with me. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Our Savior was unlawfully detained. He was unjustly tried. He was falsely heard. He was tragically sentenced, but it was a necessary injustice for perfect justice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your perfect, sovereign plan. That what man meant for evil, you meant for good. Lord, in light of that, we, we, we look at ourselves. And we look at how, how we fall short. How we sin against you. How we fail to testify the truth about you not just with our mouth, but with our lives. Lord, we, we thank you that, that you are so full in grace, but we also are so thankful that you are a just God. You are a righteous, holy God. As we see our Savior on trial, receiving unjust sentencing, and even seeing to come unjust punishment, we remember that it is perfectly just in your plan. Lord, we thank you that, that you are a God over it all, even though we can't comprehend the intricacies and the mysteries involved of how you do this. Lord, you are sovereign over all, and we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that before the foundation of time, you chose us, saved us, and the plan was fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone. And we're seeing the beginning again. His suffering in the garden and now his trial. How you are sovereignly over it all. And you are bringing your son to the cross. Where he will bear the punishment. Not for his sins. He was perfect. But for our sins. And then how you raise him from the dead, Lord, in power. We, we love you and thank you for what you're teaching us today. Help us to remember and to, and to worship our Savior, remembering what he has done for us, for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.